Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. Michelle Obanzawin is not available. At the tone, please record your message. This episode is recorded at the CFUV radio station, which is located on the unceded territories of the Lokwungen peoples. We would also like to recognize the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanich peoples, whose historical relationship with the land continue to this day. And so obviously for this episode, it's particularly relevant because we'll be speaking with the first Indigenous justice elevated to the Supreme Court. And I mean, hopefully this represents a step towards uh, a greater recognition of Indigenous legal orders across Canada by the Canadian state. We will touch on a variety of topics throughout this episode. For a more fulsome discussion of land acknowledgements and what they mean to me individually, as well as Starry and Decisis as a podcast, please feel free to go back and listen to the first part of episode one. We hope you enjoy. So thank you so much, Justice Obonsawin, for agreeing to speak with us today. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Absolutely. All right. So our first question for you then is, uh, who would you consider an unsung hero in your life? Uh, my grandmother, Jacqueline, definitely. She uh, just passed away in uh, September, so very recently. So I've been fortunate to have her in my adult life for a long period of time so she passed away at 92 uh, and uh, all throughout because I'm an only child uh, I spent a lot of time with her because if my parents had an outing she she would uh, come and babysit me and as an adult when I went to Laurentian University I grew up in a little French town called Hanmer outside of Sudbury and she lived in Sudbury so I spent a lot of time uh, with her during my adult years when I went to university. She was a, a woman who was extremely modern, so born in 1929 and uh, grew up during the Second World War, but had always worked throughout all of her career, which was not very common of the grandmothers of a lot of my friends. And um, she had a very, very work experience as a hairdresser, working as a, a communications uh, person at Bell Canada and later as a pharmacy technician and so she had a very modern view of the of the world and of the place of women in society how it was important and we played an important role in that society so she had a really big impact on my life and uh, I was very fortunate to have her for a long period of my life and my when I was sworn in here on the eagle feather uh, I actually named my eagle feather Jacqueline uh, in her honor. Wow, that's a lovely story. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I guess that sort of flows nicely into a question that we had about the fact that you've spoken publicly about coming from a working class background. And um, I'm, I'm curious to know your opinion about the extent to which intergenerational wealth and privilege that is otherwise very inherent to the field of law, um, how that influences the substance of the law? I would say that it doesn't necessarily have a direct impact on the the field of law, but uh, a reality check is required because no matter what, wealth always impacts something. So at times it may, and when I think of when it would, 
Uh, it's more with regard, for example, to access to justice, because if you have money, you're able to have access to justice, you could get counsel, you have uh, lim- more uh, unlimited resources to go through the legal system, whereas if you're not part of that intergenerational wealth and privilege uh, component as some people are, well, it's more difficult to access justice. So I don't think it has a direct impact on the evolution of the law per se, but it has more of an impact on access to justice. In a similar vein, over the past few years, we've seen kind of the makeup of the Supreme Court shift and grow more representative of society with the first person of color and, and now with you, the first Indigenous justice. What ways do you think the law most benefits from this kind of diversity? I've spoken a lot about this in different interviews because I'm asked this question often about whether or not we bring a different perspective and does it have an impact and I would say yes because our our perspective is unique and uh, I think that diversity on the bench is really it's essential to the judiciary because for it to remain like it was in the past you you wouldn't have that evolution and the progressive nature of the law uh, as I, I would say, within the last you know 20 plus years, we've been seeing. So it's important because it brings to um, the diversity brings to uh, impartial judges that are fair, but also they have a different range of experiences, different perspectives that really allow uh, judges to make uh, decisions that are informed based on their own personal experiences, and it also I think um, increases. Uh, public uh, perception of what the judicial system looks like because it's important for people to see themselves reflected on the bench Mm -hmm. and it also I think increases public confidence in the decisions that we render. Mm, Yes uh, definitely I feel like this um, kind of reminds me of what you said in your questionnaire about how a judge's role, in part, is to move society forward progressively and in accordance with the law. Um, and even though you know, progress and precedence seem in direct conflict, do you think that that element of diversity might be sort of um, that, that progressive element? Um, and is that maybe um, uh, how the judiciary strikes this balance? I don't know if it's necessarily progressive. I think it's a part of it. But I think that it's just uh, more open because when you have judiciary that have diversity included in it, your perspectives are much wider. So I would say that it brings uh, more of an opening perspective-wise when we're looking at files because our life experience uh, impact either directly or indirectly how we see files. Uh, It doesn't run how the decision will flow from that, but it just brings, uh, when you're evaluating uh, something that's before you, a perspective that is maybe has a a different understanding than others who don't have that diversity. So I think that um, it's a positive step in the law, and it could bring to uh, basically a bench that has a better understanding of everyone in society, not limited to just one class. Mm-hmm. And so kind of to that point, is there a particular case that, that you have worked on where you feel that your perspective really helped uh, see something that, that maybe others might have missed? 
I think that uh, not my Indigenous perspective, but my perspective as someone who worked in mental health law, uh, that really helped me throughout my career as a judge because, uh, as you may know, uh, in trial court, a lot of the different uh, parties that appear in front of us, especially in family law, are self-represented litigants. Mm -hmm. And at times they're touched by, as many people in our society are, touched by mental health issues. So having that uh, work and lived experience of working in the sector of mental health law um, being touched with uh, friends and family members that also are impacted by uh, mental health issues, it really has helped me with how I deal with uh, parties that appear in front of me, how I look at some of the case law. And at times, for example, uh, I would be sitting in a, a, for example, even a civil matter where uh, the file would be incomplete because there were issues of understanding how things worked and it could have been impacting, impacted, for example, by someone who was suffering a, a major depression and had uh, trouble just getting uh, himself together to put the documents in front of the court. So it's to be mindful of that and at times consider that we need some flexibility in the, the judicial system. Yes, I feel like definitely mindfulness is, is a great way to describe that. I guess maybe moving on to a similar topic, but a little different. Um, we would uh, love to hear your perspective about um, how you would reconcile the Canadian legal system with Indigenous legal orders. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people would. I can't talk about that too much because, as you know, there, there are two cases that are in front of us. Uh, one in the last session and one in the upcoming session. And uh, these are definitely issues that are going to be uh, very important to this court and, and to uh, the legal system in Canada. So uh, what I can say is that I think that uh, these are systems that could uh, work hand in hand, and I don't think uh, necessarily one is going to be above the other that uh, I think there's room for all of it. It's just for us to figure out how to make it work. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just want to circle back to a bit of um, kind of your, I know you have a, a long history working on the, uh, on GLADU and GLADU principles. Um, yeah. And so I, I was wondering what kind of your perspective was on the, on the role of the judiciary in responding to kind of the over-incarceration of uh, BIPOC offenders generally, and then also um, how you would respond to someone who is critical of the GLADU reports. I think we all have a role to play. So there are all different actors in our legal system. So the judges, we have a role to play, the counsel that are in front of us, the parties, all of the social system behind the system also. But as a, the, a member of the judiciary, I have been outspoken and I have worked and I continue to work on the training of uh, members of this profession, not only uh, the judges, but also of uh, counsel because at the end of the day a better informed judiciary and legal counsel system uh, will be mindful because these are issues that it should be an automatic when a party appears in front of us there's an indigenous component some sort of component of BIPOC like we saw Justice Nakatsuru in, in uh, Ontario who had considered that on more than one occasion um, these are issues that have to be uh, front of mind where it's an automatic, okay, well, is there an impact? Has the intergenerational trauma of this individual who's 
grandparents and parents attended residential school? What kind of an impact did that have in front of the accused that it's in front of me? Was there, uh, you know, issues such as uh, deep in poverty, um, addiction issues, uh, any other issues, mental health issues? They could all be interrelated to intergenerational trauma, for example. How did that impact and how did that lead this person to be in front of me? And uh, what kind of resources are out there to help this individual to come back and be a contributing part of society? Because the whole criminal justice system is about reforming people for everyone to be a good active member of society. Uh, so I think it's, it's important, it's essential for everyone to be mindful of what their role is in the criminal justice system, what uh, the role of GLADU factors and principles play because a lot of times for example and I sat in I did a lot of bail court where we had indigenous offenders and at times uh, there's no glad you report and even in trials there's no glad you report because we have trouble finding good qualified glad writers you don't mm. want cookie cutter type of reports about colonization and residential schools no I want to know about that person who's in front of me so we have to be able to come back to my theme of, at times, being flexible. If I don't have a GLADU report uh, that's been prepared by either social work or uh, corrections, etc., that's fine. If I could have a letter describing by the, from the community about how residential in, uh, schools has impacted that community and this person's been an active member of that community and how it impacted possibly that person's family, uh, I'm fine with that. Uh, I don't need necessarily to have a GLADU report to be able to get the information to consider uh, how the GLADU principles could be applied in a case. So I think that uh, coming back to also the calls, um, the 94 calls under the TRC, these they're definitely calls for the justice system, the education component, and uh, in that part of it, there's training and training of the judiciary sorry and counsel to know uh, what gladu principles are how they work etc i think that's essential and it's an it's a necessity yeah definitely building that kind of institutional capacity is, is is certainly so important just to be able to carry out all the things that that, that we want to uh, be able to achieve um, at the same time there's there's a lot of coverage in the media of these uh the gladu reports and and everything and mm -hmm. what do you think is is the thing that the public or the media generally kind of gets gets incorrect most often or or is kind of misrepresented well i think what happens is uh, at times and media at times central they, they want things to be out of this world so it's you know they, they play sometimes not all the times but at times they they uh, embellish facts or they don't really explain what GLADU principles are. And I think at times society think that it's a get-out-of-jail-free get card for the person that's in front of us, and that's definitely not the case. It's a consideration that we take into account when it comes to sentencing under uh, 718.2e of the criminal code. So. It's not a necessity that, okay, there's GLADU factors, there's a report, the principles are going to be applied, does not necessarily mean that it's going to vary the sentence. At times it will, at times it won't. So I think because of that component of media, 
uh, I think that it skews sometimes how decisions are uh, described to the public, and there's maybe a misperception of how GLADU uh, principles work and impact the accused. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. Um, okay, I think then uh, changing gears a little bit, um, you have had uh, an extremely impressive career thus far and have worked in, in many different areas, but there is, I guess, something I mean, many things unique <laughs> working on the Supreme Court of Canada. I think what comes to mind is the fact that it is really, quote unquote, the end of the line. Um, and uh, how do you think that differs from your previous judicial experience? Um, how does it feel to be a member of the court of last resort, so to speak? Well, it's definitely different because before, as you know, I was a trial judge and Basically, we hear trials, we have parties that appear in front of us, we have evidence, uh, we have juries. Uh, these are things that are very different from what I now see on the Supreme Court. Supreme Court, we see counsel and that's it. We don't have uh, witnesses and evidence and juries and we have evidence, but it's in a different way. So I, I have to be honest, that's a little part that I think I'll always miss because I love doing trials uh, I love uh, having the parties appear in front of me, the witnesses, uh, the human element of it, I, I really enjoyed. Uh, and and that's something that uh, I, I just, I adored. Here, it's uh, something that for me on the academic side of my brain is, is challenging, it's fun. Uh, I love coming to work in the morning because it's something completely different on a different level. Uh, yes, it's the law, but we're looking at things that impact all of Canada, not just the file that's in front of me as a trial judge. So it, it, I've been really fortunate because I've seen both sides of the coin as someone who sat as a trial judge and did uh, a large amount of, of trials, uh, especially on the criminal side, which I adored, and then to see it come up to the Supreme Court and how these principles that trial judges uh, at times will use uh, when they're making their decisions, well, the majority of the time, not at times, uh, and how our decisions of the Supreme Court impact the lower levels is is quite amazing. So I, I have to say, I still come to work in, in the mornings at times and think, wow, like I made it. I can't believe I'm here. It's still, um, you know, it, it's, awestruck moments at times to, to still after what maybe four or five months being here that I, I made it and I'm here and I'm part of the, the Supreme Court of Canada that's having this tremendous impact on the law throughout Canada it's it's just at times I I'm still at all amazing yeah is there anything that has particularly surprised you about being on the Supreme Court anything that has surprised me I have to think about that it's there are all kinds of little surprises, uh, just how things work, because when you're in a different trial-level court, you have a large amount of uh, different judges that you work with. Well, in Ottawa, at least, we were about 35 judges, so you, you could talk to all kinds of different people about the law and your files, and here it's different because you're in a prearranged marriage with eight other people. So uh, just that component is, is new and foreign to me. And it's great, though, because you really, I could see in my short period of time, you get to know your colleagues really well because you're, you're with them day in and day out when you're working on these files. So 
that I have to say is interesting to me and I, I actually really enjoy it. Uh, so, but the, the, just the reading, I knew there was going to be a lot of reading when I got here, but to be honest, uh, as someone who sat in divisional court on a panel of three on, a, on the appeal court uh, under the divisional court, we read a lot, but this is at another level. And I have to say, you've been told that there's going to be a lot of reading, so maybe my biggest, not surprise, but the thing that's marked me the most is the amount of reading. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a mountain and it never stops. Oh gosh, I can't even imagine. <laughs> okay, well, I would love to hear about uh, any challenges in your career that you feel are unique to women. And also if you wanted to take it a step further, um, unique to Indigenous women, if you have any, um, any personal anecdote that you'd lo- like to share with us, that would be fantastic. Well, I have to say, I worked in labor relations for the first part of my career at Canada Post, and that in itself was not an easy environment for a woman because they were postal plants, and a lot of times it was male-dominated. So to go into these plants in the middle of the night at 2 or 3 in the morning to prepare witnesses Mm. uh, for labor hearings, it was funny because I kind of walked in at times and people would look at me and it's like, well, where where does she come from? (laughs) So trying to incorporate myself in that male-dominated environment was not easy, but um, it was definitely doable. The other component is I've been a a litigator my whole career, so a lot of times people say, oh, she's been in-house all of her legal career as a lawyer. Um, She hasn't litigated, but my whole career for my 17 years until I was named to the to the Superior Court was purely litigation. So when you have children, as I had two uh, sons, it's not easy. And I was fortunate to have a husband who was also in law, who I met in law school, who was able to understand uh, how work and litigation, how it works, because it's not everyone who could understand just a litigation file itself. And as a woman, it's more difficult because uh, you're normally the first person the child calls or comes and sees when there's something uh, and if they're ill. And so it's to juggle at times being uh, the best wife and and mother you can be and also being the best litigator and lawyer you could be at the same time. It's, It's not easy. So I think in my career and even on the bench, it's still juggling that because I still have a son who's at home and the other one's away at school. And uh, we laugh because when I joined the court, uh, the Supreme Court, I told my son, if something happens, you call your dad first. Well, who does he call? <laughs> he still calls Mama. Aww. I'm still the first line. So it, it's really funny because even, for example, last week, my assistant said, your son called four times in five minutes <laughs> at the end of the day. So it's uh, juggling that is, is uh, not easy. But it's very doable, and um, getting work-life balance takes a lot of work. It's not easy. Uh, the question of my my being Indigenous, um, I had a, a particular experience, and when you start sitting on the bench, one, I looked younger than I was, too, and, and, and being Indigenous, it's almost at times like you've got to prove yourself even more than your regular colleagues who are not Indigenous. And uh, I had uh, 
one situation where I've talked about publicly, but I think it's worth recounting. I was uh, on a motions uh, list uh, that day with about a dozen files, and lawyers were in and out of the courtroom. And the day before, uh, President Trump had called uh, Senator Warren Pocahontas. So I was sitting in court that day, and uh, there was uh, a senior well-known lawyer in Ottawa speaking to a junior from her office. And they were at least 20 feet from me, and I was reading an order from another lawyer who was uh, who had just uh, did a motion in front of me, and I could overhear her conversation clearly as she's speaking to this young man about different things. And, and I'm just about to tell her to be respectful of the court and to stop talking so loudly when I hear her say, oh, yes, uh, she's a Native Indian. She's our Pocahontas of the North. Oh. And uh, I have to say, when, when she said that, I was very mad. And I, was, I type my, uh, when I'm in court, and I have to say, my, my hands started to shake because I was so mad. But I took a moment to reflect. I didn't want to say anything that I would regret, but I wanted to say something that was going to be valid and on point. So when it came time for this uh this person, well, her colleague, the junior, to come up and argue his matter as he was walking forward, I put on the record and I said, well, uh, for the record, I just have been referred to as a Native Indian being the Pocahontas of the North. And then the young man said, no, no, no. And he, I, you know, I can't blame him. He was on the receiving end. But he said, no, no, uh, Your Honor, it, it was really, uh, we were talking about Trump's inappropriate comments. Well, and maybe that's what he was talking about. That's not what she was talking about. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought it was a really important moment, a teaching moment also for my children, because when I got home that night, I told them about it. And um, I told them that it was really important that when these things happen to us, uh, we have an obligation to say something about it and not just let it lie and be dormant. Because if we don't say anything, then we're just going to perpetuate the problem and it's going to continue. So we, we have to address it head on. And then afterwards, uh, I ended up by getting a letter of apology from this woman lawyer, which was not a letter of apology, um, that said, you know, I, I understand that you were not happy with a, a a private comment that I made to a colleague. <laughs> uh, listen, lady, that was not a private comment to a colleague, but uh, I did end up by calling the manager, managing partner of the firm afterwards and uh, told him that uh, I did not accept that letter of apology. It was not appropriate. So it, it was um, something that's happened, I'm sure, to other uh, visible minorities and other ad- people from diverse backgrounds, but I think uh, what's important is how we react in these situations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I've seen through your career you how much you you care about those things and, and really addressing those injustices and in all sorts of areas. I mean, what something that, that really stood out to me personally and, and which I really thought was incredibly impactful was kind of your work on mental health and, and kind of improving treatment and, and destigmatization. I mean, you, you've worked so much and, and done, done so much for, for that specific cause, but obviously there are still kind of barriers that exist. What kind of barriers to improving treatment and, and these kind of destigmatization of, of mental health 
within the criminal justice system do we still kind of need to dismantle? I think we have a, a problem at the social base because we have um, issues with funding, for example. So where I was general counsel before I was named to the court at the Royal Ottawa Healthcare Group, uh, you get limited funding for a certain amount of beds. And the problem is, uh, for example, I think when I was at the Royal, there were eight beds for uh, youth. Uh, you have children, uh, CHIO, which is the children's hospital that had youth beds also, but very limited. When you think of all the children we have in the Ottawa area, for example, and you had eight specialized beds at the men leading mental health centre, you know you have a problem. So we need uh, better access to uh, mental health services for our youth, our adults also, but I think youth are really impacted, especially with the pandemic. Uh, we've seen the, the numbers soar, we've seen su uh, suicide rates increase. So I think that, uh, you know, there, there has to be a mindfulness about access to uh, appropriate mental health services. And it's really come to light in the last couple of years because of the pandemic that there's a real shortage and there's a problem related to that. So I think uh, on the social base, we really have to look at that and that's not for me to to ponder on too much but that I think it's important to to put it out there that we need uh, better uh, more mental health services not just for the criminal component of, of forensic mental health which are for unfit accused and for not criminally responsible accused but for just um, the general population in, in general and especially uh, I think youth have been really impacted in the last couple of years. Yeah, building that, again, that institutional capacity kind of outside the courts as well is, is so important. And kind of also in a, in a similar vein, I mean, mental health has also been a really big discussion recently within the legal field and how to find that, that work-life balance as well. And so you touched a little on it earlier. Could you kind of expand on what you do personally to, to achieve that work-life balance? Well, I would, I'd be lying if I told you that when I went home, I didn't think about work <laughs> because uh, I do work at night. But uh, I try to spend as much time as I can with my husband and my sons. Uh, but personally, myself, I, I do a lot of art. So I paint, I do glass art with my oldest son, who is actually in a specialized blown glass program now. So I, I try to do a lot of art. I, I read a lot. Um we have three dogs, so I do a lot of outside activities with uh, our three dogs, and uh, I keep myself busy in, in that way, playing sports, and it, it it's a good way to keep your sanity as you're going through this crazy life that we go through. Yeah, I've, I've definitely <laughs> found that very important, and, and especially early on in law school, really struggled to find that balance, but definitely finding it a lot more uh recently but um i also just wanted to circle back to something something we talked about earlier which was kind of the legitimacy of d decisions and uh, i mean in a similar vein you've kind of emphasized the need for judges to remain politically neutral obviously there there's some decision in in some certain circumstances where decisions are kind of unavoidably have political outcomes mm -hmm. and so in kind of what ways can can this neutrality be maintained well, I think it's an automatic. So when you're named to the bench, it doesn't matter at what level you're at. 
your name there because you're supposed to be impartial and neutral. So we as judges make our decisions based on the files as they appear in front of us. So with as they're argued, as the evidence is presented, et cetera. So I think that uh, at the end of the day, um, we're known and our oath is to be impartial and neutral. We do make decisions that at times impact political forums, but that's why we're a different actor. We're the judiciary. Those are politicians. They do their role. We do our role. And at the end of the day, uh, definitely our decisions are, uh, impact that system, but uh, our role and our oath to the system is to be impartial and neutral, and I think that that is an essential component of being a judge. Absolutely. Um, okay, well, I guess our final question is a more uh, a lighthearted one. I personally, I love reading mystery novels, and I've read in some other interviews that you also enjoy mystery novels, so I would love to hear about any recent favorites. Well, one of my clerks recommended a new author to me. Um, I'm hoping I'm going to pronounce his name right. It's uh, Alex uh, Michaelides, I think. Um, he's Greek, and he uh, has really, in two books that I've just read since I got here, that I really uh, have enjoyed uh, immensely. So I, I really liked reading his books. They're thrillers. The Maiden is one of them. can't recall the name of the other one. But um, I love Harlan Coben. He, uh, for those of you who are Netflix fans, uh, some of his books have been made into uh, TV shows and, and movies. I love uh, John Sanford, Jonathan Kellerman, David Baldacci. These are the my go-tos, my list of normally I always circle back to every year when they issue a new book. Yes, I know. I, I know of the Patient. I've not. I've not read it, but if you enjoyed it, then I'll definitely have to check. Oh, it the out. Patient is is really see that's the the book I couldn't remember the name. The Patient and uh, the Maidens, but oh, these are are real good psychological thrillers, and I really like that aspect of it. It, perhaps an odd question, but have you ever read um, Justice McLaughlin's uh, murder mystery novels? Yes. Well, I read all of her books, and I have to say I laughed so much because I think in the, the first book that she had, uh, her her character... I, did you read the book? Because her character walks through the courtroom, mm -hmm. and she makes a snide comment about the picture of the Chief Justice. <laughs> it's really Chief Justice McLaughlin. And it was, I, I thought that was so hilarious, and I, her husband is actually uh, one of my mentors, uh, Frank McArdle, the chief uh, justice's, uh, former chief justice's husband. So it was funny because he says, well, give me your book and I'll ask the chief to sign it for you. So I actually put a little tab next to where she made that comment about herself in the painting. <laughs> and I wrote her a little note how I thought that was really hilarious. And when I saw the the next time, we we laughed about it. So yes, I've definitely read uh, those books. And her, uh, she wouldn't call it an autobiography, but her autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, all right. Well, I I don't think we have any other questions for you, um, unless there was anything that you uh, would like to say that has come to you as as we were speaking. Not really, just uh, I really encourage everyone to just, I think what's important is to be themselves and to be the best versions of themselves as in the legal profession and not to forget who
who you are, where you came from, because I think our personal experiences impact how we are in the future and in the legal field. It's essential to be able to tap into our own personal experiences and who we are and who, where we came from. So at times I find um, I've had uh, junior counsel in the past who forget those things. And uh, these are not faults. These are benefits to your career. And I, I really want everyone to be mindful of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, particularly within the, the difference between kind of working and being in school is the, the difference in the, the theoretical elements versus seeing the people and mm-hmm. seeing seeing how it impact the law impacts people directly. And, and those are oftentimes very divorced from each other. Yeah, no, people, people are the key, right? These are, in the legal system, they're people that appear in front of us with stories and lives, and these are all the things that, that bring everyone together, and we have to be mindful of that. Because these decisions we make in the law impact people. At times, corporations, but the majority of the time, <laughs> impact people. And families, when we do family and child protection cases, these have really direct impacts on people and at times they're they're great and at times they're devastating and we have to be mindful of that. Yeah, definitely an, an important thing to always kind of keep at the top of mind mm-hmm. throughout the practice of law. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, thank you so much. It's been fantastic speaking with you. We didn't really get to say at the beginning and it's it's several months overdue, but we would love to congratulate you on appointment to the Supreme Court. And it's it's really been, I'd say, like a dream come true to get to speak to you today. Well, thanks, Cassidy. And, and Patrick, I appreciate you uh, inviting me to this. It's uh, been great. I I always enjoy these sessions. I think it's it's fun, and I, I appreciate you taking the time. So merci beaucoup, and Ulioni. Thanks. I look Have forward great... to reading all your decisions. Yes, <laughs> me too. Have a great rest Thanks. of your day. Yes, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Okay. It has been one week since our interview. How do you feel now, Patrick? Um, good. I mean, I, I think for me, I had a similar feeling to you because we had so much panic about yeah. technical difficulties that yeah. we had and then I thought you were really calm out. I didn't think you were that panicked I was very <laughs> panicked inside and it made me kind of black out the first half of the interview um yeah because I was just I think because I didn't know no one taught me how to use this software so I was like yeah. well Patrick's got it <laughs> yeah <laughs> little did we know you didn't have it yeah no, you did it. Yeah, somehow. Yeah, what lasting thoughts are you left with after going back and, and listening to the interview? I think this is maybe not that profound, but she just sounds like a normal person, which was very nice. Like I, I, I and I felt like she was really engaged in the conversation and interested in the questions that we asked. And for some reason, I just expected that it would be like talking to <laughs> like an institution but it's like, oh no, she's a person. And I really appreciated how she was really interested in the questions too that were not law questions and she really wanted to answer those. It broke my heart a little. I was like, oh my God, the only thing people have been talking to her about for like the past probably year has been Supreme Court adjacent. Yeah, I'm. I, yeah, that's true. I'm sure that does get tiring. But 
yeah, very similarly, kind of the humanity of it all and like the human, <laughs> the human element. Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, just just the human element that kind of permeates all the law. I think mm-hmm. you saw that throughout. I mean, early on, if we're talking about the, the role of diversity in the legal system and, and how necessary that is for an effective functioning of a legal system and then obviously towards the end where it was more kind of explicit and just how much we need to consider the human element of the ways that the law impacts people and that connection Mm -hmm. and I think that's clearly like a top of mind for her too like to show people that she's human and to show people Mm -hmm. like in her work with like mental health that these people are human as well and and with the Gladue reports yeah and just on like a maybe a different note of I feel like as a law student you you read so many Supreme Court of Canada decisions and you just see like the names and it just feels like so unreal and like there isn't but there's actually a whole person behind that and there's so many different things I think that go into the decisions obviously it's it's really different when you're hearing the appeals and now at the Supreme Court with most cases you've gone through multiple courts and you're kind of doubly removed from the fact-finding process only doing these very high-level decisions about very nuanced elements of the law versus just immediately applying laws to the facts but in 2022 the justice that she's replacing Justice Moldaver there were two decisions in 2022 in decisions regarding criminal law where he would have been the effective swing vote and those two decisions are rv sharma and rv beaver and so obviously the first one is on gladue i mean definitely a possibility that 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 could have come out a different way mm-hmm. and beaver too obviously i mean very different talking about the the confessions rule and those two for sure could have come out in a different way. I also think another thing that is going to be interesting is I think because she's the first Indigenous justice on the Supreme Court, I think there is maybe like a lot of external pressure for her to like carry Indigenous legal issues and like above other things. But I, I don't know. I feel like that's an unfair responsibility to place all on her. So I'm just curious to see kind of how the dynamic works out, you know, with them all together. Yeah. I mean, obviously, very difficult, but there's going to very likely be a lot of scrutiny from kind of both sides of that issue, so to speak. Uh, Yeah, there will be obviously heightened scrutiny to deal with and so much pressure to put on on a, a single person. Yeah, which is why having only a single indigenous justice and a single person of color on the bench is like just a drop in the water just to start yeah the absolutely shocking that it was 2020 yeah when we had the first person of color elevated to the supreme court i mean i think she has said this in interviews but like the average canadian i think is not as aware of like the makeup of the supreme court as maybe an american would be of the american supreme court the u.s supreme court I don't know. I guess because it's a different process, but I think too. I mean, it's just the media coverage in Canada is different than the court. Like, it's mm-hmm. not for whatever reason in the U.S. It's it's such intense, massive, massive scrutiny, and maybe it's that their decisions are kind of reactionary in some yeah. cases. Is there anything you regret? I think just not asking more questions. Like, I think I felt like I feel 
like it was so so surreal and and I was really nervous for it right immediately before and then also I was nervous like the week leading up but I just tried to put it out of my mind and pretend that it wasn't happening and now I feel sad that it's over like I just felt like it was it was such a lovely conversation just such a nice interaction and um and I felt like if I had been maybe a bit more on my toes like I could have could have just dug a little deeper (laughs) not like trying to dig things out of her but we could have asked more we could have done more I know I I definitely have that I mean obviously with something like that it's just all these tiny little things you would have changed or other things that that you think of like immediately after Mm -hmm, oh gosh mm -hmm. hard not to overthink that but yeah it's just like the nature of the kind of interview like it's such a like (laughs) this is maybe not the right word but like a high status person to interview and I think you get caught up in that and like forget I don't know basic interviewing practices (laughs) not that I'm an expert on that but yeah yeah exactly I mean we're just low budget no budget yeah Indie podcast. Indie podcast, yeah. I guess almost all. Very yeah, many, well, I guess not all, but a lot a lot <laughs> of podcasts are indie podcasts. So we shouldn't complain. Yeah. Now that you've spoken with her, is there anything that you'll be looking for when you're reading her decisions in the future? Oh, um, that's such a good point because she was very pointedly like for Indigenous legal orders. I can't go into too much depth because there's cases that are actively coming out. And so because we didn't really get maybe a fulsome answer on that question, I'm going to look for an answer from those cases. Yeah. And then I guess just I'm curious like, I've not read a decision of hers, so I'm just interested to see, like, what her style is like, I guess. Like, that's because her her interview style is very, like, engaged and down-to-earth and seemingly in touch with, like, real people. Um, and so I'm wondering if that will come across in her in her writing style. It's a pretty broad answer. <laughs> what, mm-hmm. Do you have anything more specific? I mean, first, I guess I would I would be looking for any quotes from McLaughlin or or murder mysteries. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I need to read that murder mystery and then we can do some sort of analysis. Some sleuthing. Mm. (laughs) But other than that, I think to the, the human side of it again, I mean, I feel like everything comes back to that, especially considering the way that the law interacts with people and that kind of legal realism element of Mm -hmm. that. And I mean, it's, yeah, something that that I think about a lot, or I I try to think about as much as I can, and I know that, I mean, it's it's something that's obviously been built upon a lot. And anyone who's read any kind of Alec Kerkatsanis, who talks about that a lot, and kind of his essays on on being a human lawyer, if anyone wants to check those out, talks about that 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 quite a bit. And like, how workable is this legal principle in the real world? Kind yeah, I mean, you can have these kind of esoteric principles but if the way that it's implemented or practiced on the ground is is divorced from that legal reality the law is only real to the extent that that it affects actual people mm-hmm. yeah we'll see That concludes this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Please join us next week for an episode with Tom on plain language in the law.